right, everybody. We had some good group time, huh? I love that, man. Just the family buzz is going around. Uh, we're going to enter into another time of worship here. And before this Lent series that we're currently in, we did this series on worship. We were just talking about all the different kinds of worship, whether that just be service and everything you do with your life, really, is an act of worship. It's how your heart is postured, and it's how you live out your life and how you present yourself to God. But there's also a portion of worship that we experience that's experiential, and um, how we connect to God's Spirit and how we can just open ourselves up and let Him work on us, you know, just kind of be open and, and respond. And so we're going to do some things that are not just songs like we normally sing, but kind of try to incorporate some of the different arts. Um, our prayer ministry leader, Joan Testa, who I can uh, bring up now, she she wrote a beautiful poem called The Cloak, and uh, love to just share that with you. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to have her read that. We're going to play some music underneath. And just just let your heart be responding to it. It might speak to you. Um, and then we'll have a time of silence in between that. So we'll just be silent. And I just want to encourage you to let just step into that. Really let that write upon your heart, that silence. Just um, there's so much noise that we in, encounter in our culture and, and, and things, and even in church, that sometimes just extracting the, that noise, we can just hear the voice of God better. And so just step into that as a community. And then after that, we'll read another poem by King David, Psalm 40. And uh, so just let this be an experiential time for you to just be meditative with God. And if some of these words can connect to you and help crack your heart open, uh, let them do that. And just uh, encourage you to do that. God, who am I? I cry out like the blind man, Bartimaeus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I am hidden in the crowd, settling for superficial acceptance and conditional love. The pain of my past is carefully hidden behind control, achievement, and a facade of perfectionism. Yet I long to see you, to learn from you, to be changed by you, my Lord. I step out, hesitantly, unlike Bartimaeus, who eagerly threw his cloak aside. I clench my identity, my cloak. The whole self I have only recently unlocked from the diligently protected deepest part of my soul. My experiences, my weakness, yes, my scars, and the whole of my life story. Were you part of my darkness, Lord? Could you make use of the pain? My heart longs to believe that there is a reason. Unable to throw aside my cloak, fighting my feelings of confusion, disregard, and anger. I wait. I wait for understanding. Who 
am I, Lord? It seems that the past has shaped who I am today. Does being a new creation in you mean discarding part of me? I have read your word. It tells me the old has gone. Lord, where has it gone? My thoughts and feelings wrestle with you like Jacob at Jabbok, out of character, unexpectedly and determined. Somehow I dare to wonder, do you want me to win? Desperately I request, bless my life, Lord, bless it all. Help me to be whole. Then a word from a friend, a simple prayer in a routine day. Her words ring clear and strong. I have heard that rulers in that day sewed together the robes of those who they conquered into their own robes. Lord, could you use my cloak? Is it there woven into the train of your robe? The train of which fills the temple with glory. My heart rises up with hope. My restless spirit finds comfort. I willingly surrender my cloak to you, Lord. I can see you. I can understand. And I have been changed. Myself, my identity, my story, all of me is part of your sovereign plan. There is a reason. Yes, there is a reason. I am in you. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears have been pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O oh my God. 
your law is within my heart. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips. As you know, O Lord, I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. May all who seek to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. For those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, the Lord be exalted. Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh my God, do not delay. to us when we open our hearts up to you. And we ask, Lord, that you just plant seeds inside of us today, seeds that would change us, the story of resurrection, God. Let us be your people, Lord, that live into what you are bringing to life, God. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. talented people here. Amazed all the time. Um, if you don't have a Bible and you want one, there's a table back here and uh, you might need it today, uh, most of the days that you'd come here. So feel free to grab one of those. Um, I thought I would just begin this morning by telling you that I'm not a Boy Scout. I did not get this shirt <coughs> uh, at a Boy Scout troop meeting. Actually, I bought it at Dayton's Marshall Fields, to be exact, before it went out of business on sale for $7. It's one of my favorite shirts, actually. 
So if you could stop laughing at it, that'd be great. Uh, it actually has something to do with boxing. There are boxing gloves here. Something about the Boxing Academy. I don't know if it, some of it's in Russian or something, but um, I did watch the fighter on my way home from Africa, so I figured that'd be a great segue into my Africa report. <clears throat> um, I'll just tell you a few things, uh, highlight a couple of, of things that I experienced. Uh, and, and these stories will, I'm sure, come uh, at, at, at times in the future. But um, what an amazing group of people. Uh, the church that planted us is called Berean Baptist Church. Uh, they are in Burnsville, and they've had a partnership with a group called World Relief. And uh, for about the last seven years, uh, the CEO or I don't know, I guess the president of World Relief at one point came to Berean and asked if they would be interested in partnering with World Relief to start a new work in a new district. So Malawi is a long and skinny country split up into a couple of different districts. And they had been in, I think, four districts at that point and uh, were looking to open work in a new district called Nchisi. So they came to Berean and said, would you be a church that would invest uh, a lot of money? I think for the first three years, they committed almost $70,000 a year to help World Relief start this work in Malawi. And so we, uh, I got to participate in a trip with Berean. We've been sending teams there for about the past seven years, working with World Relief on the ground. So I think World Relief has about um, seven or eight people on staff on the ground in Malawi doing a number of different things. Their mission and vision is to, to serve the most vulnerable in the world through the local church. So they um, want to step into those situations where aid and... Uh, Lots of NGOs might go, but they do it specifically through the local church, which is an amazing, amazing thing. And they kind of have a number of different programs that they, that they work out, you know, some being AIDS, HIV care, um, economic empowerment and development, um, like a, a kid's thing, a, a health and wellness kind of deal. And they go into local churches and help train and, and raise up leaders to lead these, these um, ministries, I guess you could call them, um, to the people in, in the areas that surround them. And then eventually their goal is to step out and that these would be sustainable things that the church would continue to do and, and carry on. So there's one district we visited called Nkotakota where they've stepped out of Nkotakota um, almost completely and the work still goes on there through the local church. So it's just a brilliant, beautiful thing. Um, and we got to step into that. So our time, my time specifically, was training a group of about 40 uh, church leaders uh, from four different churches, and we spent time uh, last week talking about what does a Christian leader look like, and how do these church leaders become leaders of leaders in their own communities. The rest of our group split their time between uh, memory books for AIDS and HIV, people that suffer with HIV, and then in the, in the afternoons went to home visits. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to do that, and I, I heard it was amazing. Um, you go and visit with these people who are dying of, of AIDS, and be with them and encourage them and pray with them and to hear their stories uh, is an amazing, amazing thing. One thing that, that hit me, uh, and I think people that go to countries like Malawi or other third world developing countries will come back and often say, is that in America we talk about wealth I in terms of dollar signs. And those who are rich have a lot of money. And so, of course, these people are poor. <clears throat> they don't have hardly anything. Still living often uh, where we were, dirt floors, uh, brick side with grass roofs, um, no windows, they cook outside over fires, no running water, no bathrooms. That was an interesting experience. Uh, and so, of course, these people are poor. And yet, 
there's this one story in, I can't remember what book, but Paul is talking about this Macedonian church who are poor and yet who are rich in spirit. And I experienced a group of people and churches and communities that while they live on less often, most of them less than $200 a year, uh, were incredibly wealthy, incredibly rich, and who gave out of open hearts and open hands to a group of seven really white people. Uh, it was incredible, amazing. There's this one picture, I'll, I'll see if I can get it and show it to you. One of our gals, blonde, Swedish to the core, and she's, she's surrounded by all these African little boys and girls, and it's just like, bing! Like, there's Christy right in the middle of this picture. So thank you for, um, for letting me go on your behalf and being a representative to the people of Malawi. Um, whether you know it or not, uh, because you're a part of Awaken and Awaken's a part of Berean, we t- collectively get to share in the work that God's doing there, and it is an amazing work. So bravo, uh, praise the Lord. Very, very cool, very cool. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Luke today, so if you want to open there, please do that. And while you do, I will just remind you, we're in a series on Lent. This is the last week of Lent. Lent is the, the season before Easter, 40 days before Easter, not including Sundays. And we have talked about a number of different things. We've asked why ashes in week one. Week two, we, uh, we looked at this question of why do we say no to things we're free to say yes to? So we talked a little bit about freedom in Christ. Uh, the week before I left, we talked about uh, it's not what you think, that in Luke chapter 9 and in chapter 4, Jesus gives us this clue that it's not what you think, that what it means to be human is not about individuality, but it's about relationality and about the denial of self, not the, not the, uh, the you know, promoting of self, but the den- denying of ourselves that we find life, actually. And last week, Toph and Courtney, bravo, did a brilliant job. I, I've heard and, and heard emails and a number of people uh, and did a little bit of work on the, I think the guy who was lowered into the, 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 the home by his friends and just talked about pain and, and living life in the midst of pain sometimes and where we find God in that. So this week, what I want to do is I want to continue our series on Lent and I want to do so really continuing this, this theme or this stream that we've been on talking about denial, this theme of denial. And if you remember the first week, we worked out a, a theology of Lent and really this uh, theology of denial, why we would deny ourselves things that we're free to say yes to. And the week before I left, we talked about this paradox of denying ourselves in order to find life. And today what I want to talk about is our stuff. I want to talk about money and I want to talk about our stuff. Because this may seem a little off the beaten path for a Lent series, but it's a sneaky suspicion that I have that this, is, this has everything to do with Lent. Um, <clears throat> greed... And hoarding stuff is one of the most talked about things in the Bible. Jesus spends all kinds of time talking about money and possessions and stuff, and yet it remains one of the most overlooked things in American churches, which is convenient, really. Uh, Often what we do is we find a sin that's a little bit more prevalent, or at least uh, one that we certainly wouldn't struggle with, and then we highlight those things and put them at the top of our list of things not to do. Meanwhile, this is going on in the uh, background or right next to us. Sometimes we highlight things like homosexuality, adultery, abortion. Those are kind of the top three, right? If you're going to talk to an evangelical Christian in America, it's like, don't do these things. Don't be uh, homosexual. Don't uh, Don't have an abortion and don't commit adultery. But 
the irony is Jesus doesn't talk about those things very much, you know? I mean, seriously, when you really look at the scriptures, Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time talking about any of those things. Probably the most is adultery. So what I want to do today is talk about our stuff, our possessions, because Jesus talks a lot about it, and the Bible talks a lot about it, and I think it has a lot to do with this season of Lent. So if you're a little uncomfortable, I'm glad, because that's where I want you. Um, Luke chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 25. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 says this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother, his children and his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees him will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. This is negotiating, right? In the same way, if any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is talking about counting the cost to be a disciple of him, counting the cost to follow him. And he ends the whole thing with, if anyone does not give up everything he has, he cannot be my disciple. Why don't you pray with me if you would? God, we ask that today, as we spend time together in this gathering, that you would make clear to us something new, fresh, uh, relevant, um, specific to us and to our community. I pray that as uh, I speak and share the things that I think you've put on my heart, that you would speak through me, that you would give me bold, boldness and courage to say the things that I think we need to hear. And Spirit of God, I ask that you would take up my words and take up these words in this text and reveal yourself to us, God. We pray in your name and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. So Jesus is talking about what does it mean to follow him, and he's talking about counting the cost. If a guy's going to fight a war, he would certainly count the cost and see if his 10,000 can beat his 20,000, and if they can't, he would certainly go and try to negotiate peace. He ends the whole thing with, if anyone does not give up everything he has, he cannot be my disciple. Which is a little interesting, right? Because I bought this shirt for $7 on clearance at Marshall Fields. I own it. I bought these pants, Levi's, I think. And I bought these shoes. Uh, you, they look like Converse, Chuck Taylor's, but they're not. They're actually made by a company called Robert Wayne. You can find them at Nordstrom's. Um, so I own these shoes. And my car in the parking lot, thanks to a big gift a couple of Christmases ago, I paid it off. I own that now. And my house, my wife and I, we own that house. Well, in 42 more payments, we'll own that house. Do you see the problem here? Because either, well, Jesus says, if anyone does not give up everything he has, he cannot be my disciple. So am I a hypocrite? Because I own this stuff. I came today with clothes on, thankfully. And I'm glad you did too. So am I a hypocrite? But let's talk about you for a moment. Let's not talk about me all day. Let's talk about you. How many of you came with clothes on today? All of you. And I praise the Lord for that. How many of you drove cars here today? 
How many of you own houses or have a mortgage on a home? How many of you own a car? How many of you own a, I own a boat and I love my boat. I love it. I'm so, I'm, I'm excited to go fishing. So we all own things. So and you call yourself Christians. I mean, this is just ridiculous, right? Hello, Joe got a problem. That's what my grandpa used to say. What is Jesus really saying here? Because either he's lying, he's saying something else, or he wants us to sell everything that we have, give up everything that we have, and, and, and then be his disciples. And the danger here is most of the time we say, well, obviously he doesn't mean that, right? He doesn't mean if you don't give up everything you have, then you can't be. He doesn't actually mean that. Or when Jesus says other things that are crazy, like if you don't pluck out your eye, you know, uh, or you know what I'm saying, right? Our first instinct is to say, obviously, he doesn't mean that. But we have to be very careful because what we do there in that moment is based on our logic, our intuition, our common sense. We come to this conclusion that obviously Jesus didn't mean that. And you have to be reminded that your common sense and your logic, Jesus does not answer to our common sense. The scriptures do not answer to our logic. What we think is logical and what we think is common sense is actually a really bad criteria to determine whether or not what Jesus said is true or not. Because if you think about it in all seriousness, the kingdom that Jesus talks about is totally upside down. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. If you want to save yourself, lose yourself. What he says is backwards almost all the time. So if we're going to look at what Jesus says, our common sense and our logic is not a very good criteria to determine whether or not it's true. So we have to maybe dig a little bit deeper. Um, I would say that the context of the book, the book itself, the scripture as a whole, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the scripture, these are things that what Jesus says has to answer to. So if we're going to understand what is Jesus actually saying in Luke 14, not necessarily our common sense or our logic would be a good place to start, but let's look at contests. Let's look at the rest of what Jesus says. Let's look at the teachings of the scripture. And if we let this thing live there, I think that we will find that this is an amazing teaching. So are you with me? Are you ready? I'm ready to unpack this. So if you're not, just draw for a while. Before we really unpack it, let's, let's ask a couple other things. Does Jesus say this anywhere else? Any other times that Jesus says, sell everything you have to be my disciple? Can you think of any? The rich young ruler. So this guy comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is actually code, in, code word in Jewish and Hebrew for, what must I do to inherit the age to come? This age and that age. And Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. And of course, the guy's all bent out of shape and he leaves sad and and alone. According to my understanding and my reading of scripture, this is the only other time where Jesus makes a claim like this. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor or sell everything you have. This is the only other time. There are a lot of other times where it seems that Jesus is okay with possessions. Zacchaeus, for example. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He's, uh, He's extorting his countrymen, making them pay more taxes than they should, making a truckload of money on their backs he gets convicted and jesus he sells half of what he has and gives it to the poor or gives it back to the people he stole it from and jesus commends him for doing what he did jesus doesn't go on to say sell the rest of what you have he commends him for selling half of it 
uh, Jesus in his ministry went around to different houses and he stayed with people. Now, we don't have a, there's not a no mortgage banking system like we have now. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say, these people own these houses, pretty probably outright. They were, they owned them. They bought them or traded for them or bartered for them and they own them. Jesus shows up. He stays with them. He never says to any of them, woe to you who own a home. Actually, what I think he says is thanks for letting me stay here and thanks for the food. He, he assumes that they have these things and that's okay. He sends out his disciples and he says, take only the things on your, only the clothes on your back and, and like a sack, nothing extra. And, and trust that God will provide. But what does that assume? That they're clothed, that they're wearing something. And he doesn't get on, he doesn't berate them for owning things. My favorite one is in 1 Timothy 6. Paul says, command those who are rich in wealth, not to hope in wealth, but to trust God, who richly provides all of these things for our enjoyment. (laughs) So you have Jesus saying, if you don't give away everything you have, you don't sell everything you have, you can't be my disciple. Then you have Paul saying, God provides these things. He blesses you. He gives these to you for your enjoyment. And furthermore, if you are going to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, don't you aid in their sinning. Because if you give them things, then they can't follow this passage, right? I mean, if you, if you give everything away, everything that you have away to people that don't have it, then you actually make it impossible for them to follow Jesus. And you know what Jesus says about those kinds of people? It's better to have a millstone around your neck and you'd be thrown into the bottom of the ocean, okay? What, what are we to do here? What are we to do? Something funky is going on here, and I think we should get to the bottom of it. Before we do that, I want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, I heard a a, a portion of this teaching from a guy named Greg Boyd over at Woodland Hills for the first time. And this concept that I'm going to get to, I need to give him credit for because it's brilliant. So despite what you believe about Greg's interpretation of sovereignty and free will and all that, this point is actually really good. So here's, here, here we go. In order for us to get to the bottom of this, you, you, uh, we're going to have to get into like the original language. And I, and, and I want to I just really ask you, don't check out here because this is about to pay dividends, I think. So we're going to look at the original language here because sometimes that's the only way we can get to what Jesus was really saying. So we're going to break this down and we're going to look at this passage. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So the first two, let's check this out. The first word I want to look at is give up. The Greek word is apatasso, and it means to bid farewell, to renounce or send away. It's not rocket science. There's no tricky thing here. There's no double meaning. It really just means anyone who does not give up, who, who doesn't bid farewell, who doesn't send away or renounce, uh, that's really it there. The second word there, or the second part, everything you have is where we start to find the good stuff. Everything you have is, is a combination of two words. It's pas in Greek, that means all, and huparko, which means to possess or own. So anyone who does not give up everything he has, right? Apatasso and then huparko, cannot be my disciple. Huparko is made of two words, hupo and arko. Hupo means literally under, and arco means to begin. So literally what it says is to come under, to begin, or bring about something new. So Jesus says, if you do not give up, apatasso, renounce, send away, bid farewell, if you don't give up everything you have, and this is where it gets really good, everything you have, huparco, everything that you come up underneath to begin or make new. 
Now, that sounds like a really bad sentence, and it is. As it's applied to possessions, we do not bring into being anything new. We don't bring into being anything we possess. So if I say, this guitar is mine, it's not, it's Ben's. But if I say it's mine, I don't bring anything new into existence. I don't create this guitar. God is the creator. So that's not what's being said here. But as it's applied to possessions, what happens is we bring into being a new reality. Prior to me saying this guitar is mine, a reality doesn't exist. The reality of ownership, the reality of mine, the reality of this relationship, this ownership. But when we hoop arco something, when we say that's mine, we come under to bring into being something new. And what's being brought into being is this new relationship that this is mine or I own this. Make sense so far? So, so Jesus says, unless you give up apotasso, everything you have, huparco, pas and huparco, you can't be my disciple. Huparco, the word is a present active participle. I'm a terrible grammar guy, so that means nothing to me, and it probably means something to some of you, and you're smarter than I am. Present active participle is just this. It's an ongoing reality. So when I say this guitar is mine, it doesn't just happen once. I come under to begin something new. I create a new reality, a new relationship that's ongoing as long as I say this is mine. So it's not something that we do once, but it's something that happens and then continues on. So I am always huparcoing this guitar. I am always owning this guitar. Okay, you still follow? Everybody still tracking? Now let's keep going in this passage. Because so far, all Jesus has said is unless you bid farewell or renounce all that you come under to begin, or in other words, unless you renounce the ongoing process of, of mining, saying this is mine, then he goes on, he says, you cannot be my disciple. Cannot is two words. It's ou and dunamai. Ou means not. Just a prefix that means not. And dunamai means power, ability, or strength. So the word dunamai is, is two words. Uh, which we'll get to in a second. When we say cannot, in the West, we think that it's a rule, right? If I do this, then I cannot do that. If this happens, then this can't happen. And Jesus isn't telling us a rule necessarily. He's not saying, if you don't do this, then you can't be my disciple. He's not making a rule that if you do this, then, then it's, I'm not going to let you do that. He's describing a reality that becomes important. He's describing something that's true about what happens when we say mine, when we hubarco something. So cannot is this word dunamai, and it comes from the the word uh, dunamas, which we get dynamite or dynamic. So Jesus is saying, unless you renounce the ongoing activity of mining, you will lack the power to be my disciple. You will lack the authority or the power that comes from being my disciple. It's not you can't be my disciple because you own something. But if you own something, if you mine something, you will lack the authority and the power that comes when you say yes to me and follow me. Okay? Now, the question that's super important for us to ask is why? 
if we're going to study the scriptures, Jesus says, if, unless you renounce everything you have, uh, everything that you say mine to, everything that you come under to begin, everything you're mining, unless you renounce those things, you will lack the power and authority to be my disciple. Why? Because there's nothing else in this passage that helps us out. Why does Jesus say that? What is it about possessions? What is it about money? What is it about wealth? What is it about mining those things that makes us unable to be Jesus's disciples? That, what is it about them that makes us lack the power to be his disciples? At this point, we need to turn to other things that Jesus has said. So turn to Luke chapter 16, just a page to the right. Luke chapter 16, there's this famous passage, that, this quote that Jesus says in verse 13 when he says this. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In this passage, Jesus makes a couple things very clear. First, he makes clear to us the nature of what it means to be human as it relates to worship. So he says, no person, no human can worship two things. Remember, in our worship series, we talked about this. We all worship something. Chris Tomlin was right. You and I were made to worship. We were created by God to worship something, and we will worship something. It doesn't matter if you don't think you will. We all do. The question really becomes, what will you worship? So if we worship something, Jesus speaks into the nature of how and what we worship. And he says, you can't serve two things. You can't worship two things because worship itself, the very nature of the word, presupposes singularity. You can't worship or submit to or ascribe ultimate worth to two things. It doesn't make sense. And that's not how we are wired. So Jesus says you can't do that. But then secondly, he chooses a word at the end of this passage that unlocks the whole thing. In Greek, there's two words for money. One of them is argyrion. One of them is mamona. Jesus uses mamona for a particular reason, for a specific reason, because what he is saying is of ultimate importance. Argyrion is just change, note, uh, coins, money. But mamona has a deep, significant, and powerful meaning. Mammon, or mamona, is this Greek word, and typically the word mamona is is used, and it's significant because when Jesus uses it, he's referring to a, and don't get all freaked out, don't freak out on me here, okay? He's referring to a demonic force and power that's behind prosperity, money, and wealth. Okay, there's, and, and if you read uh, ancient literature, you will see this. You see it in Greek literature uh, among philosophers and poets. You see it in, in into the Middle Ages. You see it in theologians. Thomas Aquinas talks about it. Even Milton in Paradise Lost talks about this idea of something that's behind this mammon, this thing called mammon or this idea of money. Often it's, it's uh, depicted in artistry, and this is one of the pictures that, that was uh, painted. So this is someone's depiction of mammon, this Greek, uh, this false god of money and wealth. So Jesus has two words to choose from. One is just money, coins and notes. The other is this deeply rich symbolic picture of of a power and an authority, a principality, if you will, that's behind money, power and wealth. 
So Jesus says you can't serve two things. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, let's put all of this together. Jesus starts in Luke 14, and he says, those of you who do not give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciples. We've done the language work. We found that this means unless you renounce this ongoing process of mining that happens when you say mine, you will lack the power and authority to be my disciple. Then he goes on in Luke 16, and he says, he tells us about the nature of our capacity to worship, which is singular, and then he intentionally uses mammon to describe this false god of of money, power, and, and wealth. Let me break it down for you. This is what I think he's saying. The minute you start to identify your stuff as mine, it mines you back. Money, things that money can buy are not neutral. They come with a price tag and they come with a cost because we don't just say mine once and then walk away. When we say mine, when we say I own this thing, it mines us back. Because what Jesus is talking about is not money on the table, but this power that's behind wealth and money, this false God which has tentacles and talons. And when I say I own something, Jesus says you will lack the power to be my disciple because you cannot mine more than one thing. You cannot worship more than one thing. So when I say mine to something, it mines me back. It owns me back. And there is a new relationship that's created between me and it. When we make a claim on something, it makes a claim on us. When we say mine to something, it mines us back. Insofar as we hold on to something, it holds on to us. Insofar as I own something, it owns me back. And Jesus says you don't have the capacity to do that with more than one thing. You don't have the capacity to worship more than one thing. And if you own or mine things in a way that you confer this new reality onto it, it will mine you back and suck you dry of the power that comes from being my disciple. A few points of application. How do we live in a culture with money and possessions and wealth and not allow those things to mine us back? How do we live amidst the culture we live in without letting those things and the thing behind the thing mine us back. Because we live in America. We live in a place where we have to, unless you're going to you know, do a really intentional community and live close to a grocery store where you can walk to get, you kind of need a car or some kind of public transportation. Uh, we live in a culture where we have to buy things and own them. So how do we do this? How do we navigate this tension and this reality that Jesus is talking about? I would offer this idea of living open-handedly. The things that, think about the things that you have in your life, all the things that you have, the things you possess. Think about them and hold them with an open hand. What does it mean for us to, to, to interact with those things without them having this relationship, this mining kind of thing where it mines me back? Uh, and, and I think it begins with a realization or a declaration that sounds like this. God, all of these things are yours. None of them are mine. These are yours. They're not mine. 
So we use them, but we don't own them and they don't own us back. Uh, have you ever heard the question, why am I not experiencing the power of God? Uh, have you ever noticed, and I, and I won't go on record saying that this is always true, but oftentimes when I talk to people where I hear miraculous stories of God's working, it's often among the poor, where they don't, they don't have a lot of things. Is it possible that some of us don't experience the power of God because all kinds of things are mining us back? And we lack the power that comes from being a singular follower, a single devoted follower of Jesus? Is that possible? That there might be things in my life and in your life that maybe very subtly have this ongoing mining relationship with me that take up the space in my heart. A few questions I think we can ask. Can I live with this thing in my life without it mining or claiming me, without it owning me, without it having an on this relationship? Can I live with this thing in my life without that happening? And if the answer is no, then get rid of it. Don't buy it. The question we ask usually is, can I afford it? Or worse, not can I afford it, but do I want it? And if the answer is yes, we buy it. Can I live with this thing in my life without it mining me back? Can I hold it open-handedly and say, God, if you take it away, or if you ask me to give it away, I will. And if the answer is no, huparco. <laughs> it mines you back. And as we think about Lent, as we think about this season where we deny ourselves things, I think it's absolutely appropriate that we think about the things in our life and can I encourage you just outside of Lent sometimes to, to deny yourselves the things around you to make sure that you're not hooparcoing them, to make sure that they don't mine you back. Whether it's TV or, or a boat or a, a possession, uh, something, some things that we hold very close to us can very subtly turn into this thing that mines, that has talons and and sucks us dry of the power that comes with being a disciple of Jesus. I'm not going to tell you to go sell all your stuff. I'm not going to tell you that if you don't, you can't be Jesus' disciple. I'm not going to tell you that Christians should live in poverty. That's not what I'm going to say to you today. But I am going to say to you that Jesus asks us to bow a knee to one thing, and it's him. And as we experience Lent and the denial of things, whether it's food or possessions or... or, or uh, ourselves as we move towards resurrection, can I ask you this morning, are there any things in your life that if we honestly asked you the question, if Jesus asked you to give it away or sell it or, or not have it in your life, you would have a problem. It would, really, it would really be a struggle for you. And I would offer some pastoral wisdom that maybe you've hooparcoed something that you're not supposed to hooparco. I'm going to pray, and uh, as I do, I'm just going to, uh, a short prayer, and then Ben's going to come up. We're going to just close with one, uh, a couple of, uh, uh, an old song called the Doxology. But I want you to just, uh, to think about that. There's some three-by-five cards on your, on your table, and maybe just ask the question, is there anything in my life that I am not holding with an open hand? Is there any possession, thing, material, item, that I am not holding with an open hand, that if, if God asked me to get rid of it, my first response wouldn't be this, but would be this. 
And if there are any of those things, write them down. Write them down. Make it known. Uh, So let me pray. Ben's just going to play a little bit uh, as you think and and write, and then we'll we'll close singing this this song. So let me pray and kind of start us off here. God, thank you for this day, for your scripture, which is alive, breathing, beautiful, uh, speaking. Thank you for the ways in which uh, when we dig deeper into it, it seems to just uh, open up and, and offer more and more wisdom and beauty and counsel about what it means to be human, what it means to be in relationship with you, what it means to live in this world. God, be with us right now as we think about the things in our life, our possessions, our money, our stuff. If there are things that we have hooparkoed, things that we have mined, would you illuminate them, God? Would you, would you in the quietness of our own hearts, um, say you might want to think about this one or you might want to write that one. Speak to us, we pray.